This is Doug Hastings, Vice President of Moody Radio, and we're thankful for support from our listeners and businesses like United Faith Mortgage. Mortgage commercials are rarely exciting. So to make it slightly more interesting, here are my nieces to do it for me. So interest rates continue to drop like my sister's baby teeth. Come on, Uncle Ryan had to say the same thing last year. That's true. Last year, it was rates are boring talk historically low. And now this year, there's somehow even more boring talk historically lower than the previous boring talk historically low. Sounds boring. But for so many listeners who just haven't wanted to deal with it, refinancing right now could save you massive amounts of Lego sets. Rates have gotten that low. Some borrowers could potentially save hundreds monthly and tens and tens of thousands over the life of a loan. And if you didn't put 20% down before, some could even stop having to pay PMI. Give Uncle Ryan a shot. We are United Faith Mortgage. United Faith Mortgage is a DBA of United Mortgage Corp. 25 Melville Park Road, Melville, New York. Licensed Mortgage Banker. For all licensing information, go to nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Corporate NMLS number 1330. Equal housing lender. Not licensed in Alaska, Hawaii, Georgia, Massachusetts, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Utah. You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you five messages Alan Redpath presented on the Christian life at MBI Founders Week Bible Conference 1969 and 1982. Alan Redpath was a British evangelist, author, and former pastor of Moody Memorial Church in Chicago during the 1950s. Now, here is Alan Redpath on Today in the Word radio. Will you turn with me this morning to Philippians chapter 2? Philippians chapter 2, reading at verse 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. Let us look to the Lord in just one word of prayer. Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. Speak just now some message to meet my need, which thou only dost know. Speak now through thy holy word and make me see some wonderful truth thou hast to show to me. For Jesus' sake, amen. Last evening we considered together the lordship and the sovereignty of Jesus Christ and its implications in your own personal life and in mine. We based our thoughts upon the previous verses of this chapter and we take up the theme Because we notice that the portion which we read this morning begins, Wherefore? This relates all these following verses with what has already been said. 
Because Jesus obeyed up to the hilt and was obedient unto death, because he forsook all his rights and stooped down to the cross, and God raised him up to the throne, wherefore, wherefore, work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling. A faith which is concerned only with a past salvation, with being saved from past sins, or a faith which is concerned only with a future salvation, being saved from the punishment of our sins, such a faith is very far short of what the New Testament teaches. We have a now salvation, a present-day salvation, a full salvation, and we are to work it out that we may display to this generation in which we live what God can do in and through a man redeemed by blood and indwelt by his spirit. Negatively, this means being saved from the habit and the practice of sin. Positively, it means being saved to a holy life. Dr. Graham Scroggie used to say, far too many Christian people are on the right side of pardon but the wrong side of power, the right side of forgiveness but the wrong side of fellowship, and the right side of Easter but the wrong side of Pentecost. It is the working out of such a salvation that Paul is talking about here. You notice in 12, verses 12 and 13, a program to be fulfilled. Paul is very far removed from his Philippian friends. He's in a Roman prison. And he remembers how gladly they responded to the message when he was with them. But now the human prop has gone. They're left on their own. And both he and they are very much cast upon the Lord to put their confidence in him alone. And they should work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. You see, the Christian walks on two feet. One foot is trust, and the other foot is obedience. These are not only the feet, but these are the two hands which take hold of every blessing that God has for us. They are the two eyes which show us the truth of God's word, not trust only, but obedience. Both in happy partnership, as James would say, faith and works. We need to be very careful to avoid confusion here in our thinking. Beware of confusing the works by which nobody can be saved with the works which are the inevitable result of salvation. We all love, perhaps our favorite verses, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. By grace are you saved through faith, and not, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But Ephesians 10 follows it. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So my faith must work. Trust. It's my own salvation, Paul says. Of course, in the first place, it's God's. He purposed it, or we'd never have been saved at all. 
He planned it long before the foundation of the world. He procured it when he put it into effect at the cross. He proffered it for our acceptance because he doesn't force it upon us against our will. He presses it, urging us by the Holy Spirit to take the offer of, faith, of salvation in Christ. Yes, it is his salvation, but it becomes your own when with the hand of faith you take it from the nail-pierced hand of Christ. Not a second-hand thing. You don't lean on somebody else. Not your parents' faith. What a peril it is, what a privilege, but what a peril of having a second-hand faith because you're brought up to believe what your parents teach you. Is it your salvation this morning? Well, have you stretched out a hand and put your faith in Christ? Is it your own, or is it still only second-hand? You can grasp this faith now, this very minute. A salvation which buries the past, guarantees the future, and uh, transforms the present. Trust, that's one foot. That's one hand. And the other one, obey. Just as the Lord Jesus obeyed completely and was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So obedience to the will of God becomes the principle of Christian living. He is first of all our savior, but he is also our example. Christ hath left us an example that we should follow in his steps, says Peter. And the Christian life is something that works. You give a child an engine for Christmas and he's not interested in how it looks. What he wants to know is, does it work? How thrilled he is to watch it working. So the Christian life is useless if it's merely a show, a performance. It must work for the glory of God and the blessing of other people. You know I come from the part of the world which is known for its coal mining. Perhaps you've heard of the phrase, bringing coals to Newcastle. A phrase which we use in Britain which means how useless it is to bring coals to Newcastle. It all comes from there. It used to anyway. But now the mines have almost gone out of business. But in the days of prosperity, they used to say in Newcastle, in my hometown, they're working the mines just now. They're working the mines. That meant they were digging deep, boring underground, along long coal seams that went miles out to sea under the ocean in order that they may dig out what was their means of living? And the Lord wants us to work the mine. Dig deep in the treasure of what is already ours. And as a result of it, you know what happens? Out of the mine of God's word comes a sweeter temper, a cleaner life, a gentler speech, a kindlier behavior, a sweeter tongue. A more gracious life. Oh, your Christian life has got to work. And you notice Paul says, with fear and trembling, I must tackle this. I must work at it. Not lest I lose it. I never can do that. But lest I damage the cause and dishonor the name of Jesus. 
greater than any of us. Simon Peter once says, Lord, though all men deny thee, yet I never will. But how he sinned. And even the most mature Christian needs to watch his step. At any moment, Satan may launch upon him a devastating counterattack and trip him up. And the higher you climb, the deeper you fall, the further you fall. And the greater the shame to the cause of Christ. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Ah, but I'm not left to do it alone. I think verse 13 is one of the most thrilling verses in the Bible. It is God which worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. He is the whole object of the Christian life, his good pleasure. When God made a man in his own likeness, he saw that it was very good. And when Jesus died on the cross, he did so in order to present to himself one day a church that had neither spot nor wrinkle nor any such thing. And one day when he looks upon the whole company of his redeemed people, he shall see of the travail of his soul. And be satisfied. Oh, it will be worth it all then. This was the joy that was set before him for which he endured the cross. So now I have to live, not to please myself, but to please him. And it is he who has come to live in me to make me want to do and to will to do his good pleasure. Oh, to do his good pleasure, that's the problem. That's your problem, isn't it? You know what you ought to do, but you don't do it. To will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. To will. Oh yes, I know what I ought to do. But to will to do it, that's another problem. Because the plain truth of the matter is, let's be honest, if we examine our own hearts, we just don't want to do it. We'd rather please ourselves. There's no real longing in any of us, naturally, to please God. Does it ever disturb you to find that all through your life you've got a rebel heart that doesn't want to pray, doesn't want to get up to read the Bible, doesn't want to witness, doesn't want to serve the Lord? It's all a chore. You have to force yourself to do it. Oh, to do? Yes, I know what I ought to do, but how to do it? It's not what that I need to know it's how. And to will, why, the whole thing I don't want to do it, how can I be made to want to do it? That great saint of God, F.B. Meyer, confronted with the challenge of God's will and unyielding, unwilling to yield to it, wrestled with the Lord and the Lord with him until he cried, Lord, I'm willing to be made willing that was the beginning of a greatly blessed and used ministry. If you're not willing to do God's will, are you willing to be made willing? Are you so stubborn that God can't break through that even? I'm willing to be made willing. But I can't make myself willing. For no, it is the Holy Spirit within me. Of whose presence many Christian people seem unaware, or if they're not unaware of him, 
they're afraid of him. I would to the God that more Christian people were afraid of sin than they are of holiness. If any preacher speaks on the Holy Spirit, people think he's fanatical. Brother, what on earth's the use of forsaking the wild fire of fanaticism and having no fire of orthodoxy? Hopeless. It is God who worketh in you. It is the Holy Spirit who works in you to make you will and to do his good pleasure. Not because you have to, because you want to. You mean to tell me the salvation that God offers leaves me a reluctant, unwilling follower, always hankering after the world and after sin, and only reluctantly being squeezed into obedience to God. What a travesty of the truth. How do I know that he's making me willing to be made willing? I'll tell you. I become disgusted with myself. Absolutely disgusted with myself. I begin to hate myself and my sin and my failure and my breakdown. And I begin to loathe it with the loathing of the holy God who lives in me. I begin to hate it. I used to love it. I used to enjoy it. I used to relish it. What a sweat and what a chore it was to read my Bible. Oh, what a chore to put on the sham of being an evangelical preacher of being a fundamentalist. What an effort. I wasn't with it. Ah, oh, my whole heart was set upon something entirely different. But praise God, there was a day in my life when he made me long for himself and be disgusted with myself. God ever brought you to the point of self-loathing? Oh, blessed experience. When you begin to realize that you're rotten through and through. I begin to loathe myself. And alongside that, I begin to long for Jesus. And the language of my heart becomes, I hunger and I thirst, Jesus, my manna be. Ye living waters burst out of the rock for me. Still the desert lies my thirsty soul before. Oh, living waters rise within me evermore. A disgust of myself a longing for him. And then somehow through all that, I see, I smell, I scent victory. Through a hatred of myself and the longing for Jesus, I begin to see through, through it all. And I, I scent in the air the smell of victory. And then I will to do his will. Blessed Holy Spirit, who transforms a life and makes its desires holy and pure and godlike. Only God can work a miracle like that. No psychologist can. If you can explain a Christian by psychology, you've unfrocked him. You've got a church member on your hands, but you haven't got a believer. If you can explain him psychologically, who can explain the miracle by which God's Holy Spirit comes into a man's life and makes him love what he used to hate, the will of God, and makes him hate what he used to love, pleasing himself. Only the Lord can work a miracle like that. Oh, yes. Here then, here then, is the program to be fulfilled and the power which makes the program a reality. Christ in me, the Spirit of God working in me to will and to do his good pleasure. The second thing I notice in these verses 
is that the purpose to be achieved. In verses 14 to 16, this program is not for my personal gratification. It is for widespread blessing. The Christian, these verses tells us, tell us, is in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Good news for modern men puts it this way. You live in a world full of crooked and mean people. Full of crooked and mean people. You live among people who are crooked, who can't think straight, act straight, or go straight. A perverse people, distorted, distorted viewers of God, distorted morals, distorted view of the Bible, distorted view of pleasure. And in that world the Christian lives. A worldly Christian is like a ship which has sprung a leak and the water is pouring in. It's a lovely thing, it's a wonderful thing when a ship is in the sea, but when the sea is in the ship, it's disaster. And a Christian is meant to be in the world, but when the world gets in the Christian, he's heading for disaster. The purpose of each one of us is that we're to shine in a world like this. Just as the moon keeps its face to the sun and catches something of the glory of it and the beauty of it and the warmth of it so, and then reflects the, the light out into the world, so the Christian is to reflect the light of the Lord Jesus. He catches the glow, he gets the glory, he gets the thrill of the word of God and the living word and he reflects Jesus. Let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. All his wondrous compassion and purity. Oh, thou spirit divine, make all thy nature mine till the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. That's it. You don't reach people with a church program. You don't people get people converted by all the syncopated jazz methods of today. Listen, you can't compete with anybody in this. You're to get the glory. You're to get the Lord Jesus living in you, transforming on you. And something of the glory shining through. Oh, I pray that God will send you out from this school, every one of you, a glory Christian. Someone who's got the glow, got the thrill, the reality of Jesus. Isn't that the whole secret? Paul says, do everything without murmuring and without disputing. That, of course, means murmuring with other people and disputing with them is one thing. Murmuring. Are there any school teachers here this morning? If there are, you know that that word, murmur, is what is called an automatic sounding word. You can tell its meaning by its sound. I can hear the hiss of the devil in it. Murmur. Another such word is bang. Murmuring Christ. What an amazing thing it is. I tell you, you find them everywhere. They're always murmuring. If you'd only put me on the church board, everything would be wonderful. The murmur, murmur about the diet, murmur about the minister, murmur about he takes too much holiday, murmur about the fact he doesn't visit enough, murmur about the fact he never preaches any good sermons, murmur, 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 murmur all the time, do all things without murmuring or disputing. 
Does that mean we always have to agree with each other? Wouldn't it be uninteresting sort of world if we had to do that? All the time we had to agree. doesn't mean that. I'll tell you what it does mean. Do all things without disputing. And the trouble in the church today is that we disagree so disagreeably that we break fellowship. We're to do all things without murmuring and without disputing. Ah, but this means much more than that. It means that I must not murmur or dispute with God. Oh, to learn never to turn my face from him, so that always through me the light may shine. Are you murmuring about the Lord's way with you today? Is some minister listening to my voice who's simply fed up with his church board and congregation and never appreciate him and he's on the point of resigning? Nobody ever gives him a vote of thanks for anything. Works his head off and he's murmuring. Murmuring because there's no blessing. Murmuring, oh, disputing with God with him. Why, Lord, should I come to this? Why have I to get into this situation? Why am I to deal with these kind of people? Take me from it, Lord. Perhaps you came up to Founders Week just in that state of mind. You're murmuring and disputing with God. Do you remember once when John the Baptist started doing that? When Jesus had uh, allowed him to be put in prison. There's one many questions I want answered when I get to heaven. This is priority one. I don't know about one, but it's very high on my list anyway. Why didn't Jesus take him and make him a disciple? What a wonderful follower of the Lord he would be. Why did Jesus allow him to be beheaded? Why did that happen to John the Baptist? I don't know. But there are no mistakes in the love of God, and I shall know one day. And when John was in prison, he sent a message to the Lord. He said, Lord, are you really who I think you are? He began to doubt what he believed. Are you really, really the Messiah? And you know the answer Jesus sent him? Just go and tell him, blessed is the man who is never offended in me. That's all. Not your business to know why, but it's your business in that situation, in that prison, in that difficult situation, in that grim problem that you're facing in your church now, in your context of your life at school, never to murmur with God. Do all things without murmuring. Are you serving the Lord with a chip on your shoulder? Finding it very hard to stay with your call? Finding it very hard to stay at school? Almost threatening you're going to leave before the semester's out. Clear off. Can't cope with it anymore. Too tough. Too many exams. Too hard work. Too little money. Other folks are having it much easier than me. And you're murmuring. Murmuring. Grumbling with the Lord. Grumbling with the Lord. Happy is the man who never gets offended with me, says Jesus. And Jesus said in Luke eleven thirty six, If thy whole body therefore be full of light, having no part dark, the whole shall be full of light, as when the bright shining of a candle doth give thee light. All the damage and the shipwreck that may be caused to other people, if there's some inconsistency, some unjudged habit, some unconfessed sin, some murmuring in the Christian's life, May there be none of that in us. We hear about spots on the sun, but maybe we free from them all in verse 15, free from blame, free from harm, free from rebuke. Then we'll shine. 
Oh, I want you to get that. I wish I could just spend hours on it. I know you don't, but I wish I could. Just to show you that the Christian life is a miracle from beginning to end. It's not method, but miracle. It's not program, but the power of God. Something with which the world can never compete. And the sheer power and attraction of a Christian who's delivered from his murmuring and reflects the beauty of the Lord Jesus. One last thing. The program to be fulfilled. The purpose to be achieved. But you know, my friend, there's a price to pay. Verse 16 and 17, what a program. What a purpose. Oh, it costs... And here Paul tells us of what it cost him to get the Philippians to shine. You see, lights have to be lit, holding forth the word of light, life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Paul wants them to know that in, wants to know that in the day of Christ that he hasn't labored in vain. He wants to know then that he has been God's light to set these Philippian Christians on fire. No, it takes only a match to light a torch. Perhaps we can't all be torches, but we can all be matches. We can set one alight. Peter was a great torch, but Andrew set him alight. Nehemiah was a great torch, but Hanani set him alight. C.H. Spurgeon was a great torch, but a simple lay preacher on a cold, snowy morning in a three-parts-empty Methodist chapel in a village in England set him alight. D.L. Moody was a great torch, but Mr. Kimball set him alight. Surely the Lord can make you a match to set a light a torch? How? Well, John the Baptist was a burning and a shining light. There's no shining without burning. The wax of the candle disappears. The oil in the lamp is consumed. So Paul says, If I be offered on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice in this tremendously vivid picture of what it meant to work out the salvation, Paul says. You Philippians are to offer your faith and your works as a sacrifice to God, and my very lifeblood is being poured upon it. Just as he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then life, death worketh in us, but life in you. It costs to set a torch alight. It costs to keep a light burning. It costs, it costs to keep the light burning in Congo. It's cost a bloodbath of missionaries. It costs, it costs to keep the light burning in Fiji. It costs to keep the light burning in Vietnam. Many a missionary has paid for it with his life. Many a pastor has had his heart broken and his health broken and his life shortened 
It costs to keep the light burning, to keep the fire glowing. Oh, but whatever it costs us, it costs Jesus Calvary. Have you started to live your life on that principle? Being broken bread and poured out wine. Are you working out your own salvation? Hudson Taylor once said, We may reckon our life by loss instead of gain. What we lack and love and suffer are our most prized facilities for bringing home to hearts and prepare the gospel of the grace of God. Oh, to keep the light glowing costs. We hear an awful lot together about short-term service. Just come with me for a year to the mission field and see how you get on. Go with the Peace Corps. You don't have to sacrifice anything. You come back then with more money than you went. Go with the Peace Corps. Opt out for that. Just go for a short term. My friend, that's flirting with the will of God. That's all. Flirtation. Mild flirtation with obedience. God says, set the fire and keep it burning. I was in Somali Republic about a year ago, 18 months ago. I saw there a precious young couple, a married couple, living all by themselves in an isolated mission station. Members of Stephen Alford's church in New York, a great couple. Four years there on the field, I saw them back again a few months ago, a a few weeks ago in Toronto, where they live. Exhausted, health broken, contracting all kinds of tropical disease. But the one thing that matters to them is to get well and strong and to get back again into the fight. It's cost them. It's cost them as a family to keep the fire burning. It costs everything. They don't talk about any other possible rivals or any other interests. It costs them to keep the light shining. A lady came to see me some time ago and she was about to quit her job. Oh, she said, it's too tough for me in that office, that factory. I'm the only Christian. I'm the only Christian. Can't stand it. Can't stand the blasphemy and the cursing and the swearing and the foul language. And oh, I just feels hopeless. I'm going to quit. And I said to her, listen, if you're in a big hall and there are many lights shining, it doesn't make much difference if one goes out. But if you're in a great hall and only one light shines, if your ad goes out, it's complete darkness. Maybe God is going to take some of you and put you into a place where you're the only light and you're pouring out your life on the sacrifice of the cross in order that the light may burn and the torch may shine. That's what you're called to do. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Shine in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation and it's God by his Holy Spirit, who lights the flame of sacred love on the mean altar of your heart. Shall we pray? God, save us from the self-preservation which is so natural to us all. 
and make us willing for the self-sacrifice which is supernatural and which the Lord Jesus showed us at Calvary. May our lives be utterly at his disposal and may we burn and shine for him that the world may see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. We ask it for his name's sake. Amen. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and a message Alan Redpath presented on The Christian Life at MBI Founders Week Bible Conference 1969 and 1982. Alan Redpath was a British evangelist, author, and former pastor of Moody Memorial Church in Chicago during the 1950s. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.